Welcome, Dr. Holly Richman, to Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I'm really excited to be here. Can you please get us started just by introducing yourself and what you focus on in your contributions to the field of sexuality? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, So I have a PhD in somatic psychology. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and a certified sex therapist. I got into this field. um, I did my 3,000 hours of internship at a rape crisis center and learned quickly that I, I was taught very well how to treat trauma. But then I got to this point of, okay, what's next? Because I noticed that my clients, while they were feeling better, they still didn't have a language for healthy sexuality or healthy relationships. So within that framework, I wrote my dissertation on the recovery of sexual health after sexual assault. So that really working with survivors of sexual trauma around healthy sexuality has become my prime focus. And um, it can be a lot to work with survivors exclusively after 14 years now and probably 15,000 hours of doing this. I realized I needed some diversity in my practice. So I do just, I see couples with couples therapy issues. I treat erectile dysfunction, pain during sex, kinks and fetishes, just to kind of like keep my repertoire open. Um, So I love that about my practice, but I would say survivors is still the heart and soul of my work. Well, and that's beautiful because I think what we learn, you know, as a fellow survivor, like all of the things we survivors need to reclaim and flex and develop in order to reclaim pleasure is relevant for all of us, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Just like mindfulness, you know, was first applied to trauma, but it becomes so relevant for all of us when we talk about mindful sex practices and interoception has been studied mostly around autism and sensory function, but is a human capacity that we all have. So I just want to say to folks, you know, as we dive into this conversation, we will be focusing a little bit on mindful sex and somatics for survivors, but everything we talk about here, I want to invite us all to have an open heart to. Because as we've talked about on the podcast, almost all of us, I would say all of us are survivors of our sexual culture. So many of us are partners of survivors. And so let's all go into this conversation with open minds and open hearts um, and really feel what's relevant to us and the people we love. So thank you, Holly, for being here with us. Yes. And thank you for that offering. What a good reminder. Mm, And can you please just start us by unpacking this phrase, somatic psychotherapy? Mm -hmm. Like, what is this approach? Why did you pick it? And what does this approach invite us into? Like, how does it invite us to approach our body differently? Mm -hmm. So Chris, I'm just going to start with the word soma. And I have a feeling that your listeners already know, but soma means the Latin translation is the body. So somatic psychology, we're bringing together the mind and the body. And in the traditional allopathic model, this Cartesian model of of healthcare, we look, okay, the mind is here and the body is here. Somatic psychology really serves to bring those together. So mind and body are not dualistic. And then within the framework of sex therapy and how I practice sex therapy, sex and self are not dualistic. Mm. So we're really looking at this whole, the whole holistic package model I don't have sex. I am sex. Right. So, and I'm not, I am not just healthy. I can be healthy. So it's not compartmentalized. There's not body, body parts. There's not this dualism that we typically think about it. 
Um, your question, I, I always like to answer, why did I study somatic psychology? Um, and I want survivors to hear this because I know it will resonate. I am a somaticizer. Yeah. So what I mean by that is that my body goes without me. My body will tell me something is wrong long before I, I'm smart enough and my catch up in my brain, right? I'm a shaker. I will get stomach distress. I will just feel dysregulated. And it took me so long to figure out that my body is a guide. It was trying to keep me safe instead of just trying to push through and calm down those somatic symptoms. But now if my body's talking, I listen. Um, so many survivors of sexual trauma of any kind are somaticizers. So I think learning to listen to the language of the body is such a tool and a resource for all of us. Mm. I really want to slow this moment down and echo this. So folks are invited into this framework where what might have been called your symptoms are actually ways your body was trying to protect you, keep you safe, communicate with us. Um, all of what you named there, so many people would just problematize and try to make go away instead of turning towards with this, you know, we talk about a spirit of curiosity and mindful sex. How do we turn towards the uncomfortable, the difficult, the not explainable with that same spirit of curiosity and start listening? What a beautiful invitation. Oh, thank um, you. But one that doesn't come easy, especially for folks, um, uh, survivors, folks who experience marginalization and oppression on a day-to-day -day basis. Sometimes this invitation to start listening to the body is a very fraught one. Mm -hmm. um, how do you invite folks into this really gently when the idea of tuning in is actually really scary and might be overwhelming? Yeah. How do we start? And, and Chris, I'm glad you brought that up as I was reading through your beautiful, thoughtful questions and talking about mindful sex and mindfulness for survivors of sexual trauma, marginalized populations. I want to be so bold as to say sometimes the idea of mindfulness that, that some people have cannot be healthy for all people. Yes. Um, I have sat with so many um, individuals where asking them to tune into their body and tune into their feelings and emotions becomes overwhelming. So I want to just, my offering is little chunks of time. This might be 30 seconds a day to get you started on your mindfulness practice. And that is okay. And it's first, which you spoke to beautifully, paying attention to the symptoms because this is your body trying to talk to you. And first the body like taps and then it kind of knocks and then it will push you over. So we're going to learn how to like listen to these symptoms while it's just tapping and being gentle. What is the awareness? What is the sensation? That's the best place, at least in, in my opinion, to start. What are the sensations I'm feeling? Shaky, hot, cold, not present, um, dissociated. I have a headache. So any of the sensations that, that might be coming up are a wonderful place to start. And I would just have a week or two of paying attention to sensations. And then after that period of time, you're attaching them sensations to the emotions and then the emotions to the thoughts or the belief systems. Mm. And sometimes we need more or less support around this. And so I just want to remind folks that there will be lots of resources in the show notes, um, more resources from Dr. Richmond and pathways to follow, because we all have different pathways into this. Um, and as you said that, I was reminded, you know, for me as a survivor, my first yoga class, when they said, you know, close your eyes and take a few deep breaths, I went running and I didn't come back to embodiment for a few years. 
Um, But in that time, I entered the kink world and something like a spanking was actually my access point. And so we all like I needed the intensity to feel something so I could slow down and feel more. Um, And one of the things I love about your work so much is you really affirm full spectrums of sexual normalcy. And so as we talk about this conversation, and I want to ask you about the word reclaiming, because in your the title of your book, and your course, you talk about reclaiming pleasure. But as we do that, I want to remind folks, it's not towards any one goal, any one normal, any one expression of sexuality that makes you kind of fixed or healed. It's really a journey towards a more whole self and a more uh, free and unburdened expression of sexuality, whatever that looks like to you, as with all things we do here at Pleasure Mechanics. So with that in mind, let's talk about this phrase, reclaiming pleasure. Of all the language, why did you choose to title your work with these two words? And specifically this verb, reclaiming, what lives inside that word for you? Reclaiming to me is about empowerment. It's about understanding and it's about awareness without judgment. I, yes, Mm. so we'll just breathe there. (laughs) Awareness without judgment. And Mm. I I know this is coming up in um, some questions following, but this umbrella of sex positivity for me really informs everything I do. So all sex is good sex as long as it's consensual and pleasurable. And so to reclaim within that framework, we have literally two boxes to check, consent and pleasure. I didn't say vanilla. I didn't say kinky. I didn't say monogamous. I didn't say any of those words, just consent and pleasure. What does that mean for you? Reclaiming is discovering our sexual template. So what do we desire? What turns us on? What are those points of arousal? I love the word reclaiming. I also just want to mention for some of us, it's discovering because for some of us, there's never, it's never been claimed in the first place, especially for childhood survivors of sexual abuse. Yep. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and then the word pleasure, that's just, it's the missing piece of the conversation in sex education still. It is 2022, and we're still not talking about pleasure in the scope of sex. And we definitely don't talk enough about pleasure in the scope of survivorship. And that's really, um, again, that's where my heart is. That's the work I love to do. This is why I love your work so much. Um, that reminder of, with so much compassion, that some of us, it's not a reclaiming, it's a first time discovery, no matter how old we are. And that can be true for all of us again and again. Um, And so many people feel shame when asked the question, you know, what do you want? What are you into? And we just don't know. We don't have access points to those point of peak fantasies and peak pleasures. Or we do and we're ashamed of where they lead us, perhaps. How do we start with the spirit of compassion and empathy and non-judgment into such fraught terrain, right? As we approach these um, triggers and memories and maybe even desires that are a little um, worrisome for us. Um, What are some practices here of self-compassion that we can kind of activate at the early stage of this journey um, or that we can remind one or one another in if we're in a relationship in this journey 
Um, how do we remind ourselves to come back to this place of non-judgment? It's a minefield, right? It's like to practice non-judgment at all, but in this field especially. So what does that look like for you, non-judgment? Yes. And I'm just going to say it one more time. I come back to consent and pleasure. So mm-hmm. I'll break that down a little bit. So yes. is what you are engaging in, is that consensual? So if you are having sex with yourself, and I, I encourage my clients, first, we're developing a self-pleasure protocol. And I say self-pleasure, not masturbation, because there are two different things. The self-pleasure protocol is a mindful, mindfulness-based, mm-hmm. not with any goal. Whereas when, when, when we say masturbation, it's usually about really like those heightened states of arousal and perhaps an orgasm. So coming back to consent and pleasure and what I'm doing with myself consensual for some survivors, because of the shame attached to it, this is a no. So if they're starting to self-pleasure and they notice, okay, there's a fantasy that's coming up or a memory that's coming up, a trigger that's coming up that I don't feel good about, then we need to redirect. And Mm -hmm. how I redirect is just back to the senses. Um, So that would usually be taking your hands away from any from genitals and just go back to a pleasurable touch, whether that's stroking your arm, rubbing your hair, just something that doesn't feel triggering, but is still keeping you in that consent and pleasure. Mm -hmm. And then down the road, when you're, when you're kind of moving through the triggers and have this choice and you do have choice now, say that one more time too, you do have choice now, nothing bad is happening in this moment. You are having sex with yourself. You have choice the two ways that I find my clients go is they can notice this trigger. So if they're self-pleasuring and they notice a trigger, do they need to say, wow, I really, I can't work with this. I'm going to put this in this box over here and I'm going to continue with self-pleasure in a way that feels good to me. Or for other people, they can integrate what used to be a trigger or what's that really strong piece of their sexual template. And then they can reintegrate that in a way for themselves that feels good. And I hear in that kind of an awareness of like, how resourced am I in this moment and a permission to kind of pace ourselves through this. Mm -hmm. Like we don't have to barrel through our healing towards pleasure. Pleasure is something we recalibrate towards. That's beautifully said. Yeah. Each, each and every time, each and every time that we're with ourselves or with a partner. Can you just speak a little bit more about this connection between consent and choice Mm-hmm. Because I think it's a really important thing to know about choice and agency within consent. Um, and what does this word agency mean to you within the like very active verb of reclaiming? Mm-hmm. What wakes up there? Agency to me, um, you know, the first thing that's coming to mind when you ask this is free of coercion. Mm-hmm. And free of coercion, it can be very overt, but it can also be people pleasing. So if you feel yourself doing something to please your partner, or if you feel yourself doing something that is culturally prescribed that you think you should do, I would challenge you just to look at consent and choice there. Is this really what you like? Is this really what you want to be doing? Um, So much of this is pulled from porn and I am totally pro porn, but I'm also pro knowing that it's not sex education or what most sex looks like. So again, if we're feeling something that's even just culturally prescribed, which to me feels a little bit culturally 
coercive, then we just need to take a step back, go again, back to our sensations, back to the body, something that's not triggering. Yeah. The, the shoulds we talk about, you know, like stop shoulding on ourselves. Yeah. Because um, those can be really subtle, right? Um, and I want to just focus a minute on, you know, we talked about consent and pleasure. What does pleasure have to do with it? And how do you as a kind of psychotherapist think about the role of pleasure in our lives? And why is it important to focus on at all, let alone for us as survivors? Um, how can it be a pathway? It's, to me, it really is the pathway. Mm. And I can speak about this personally. Um, for 12, 13 years, I lived a life of such rigidity, such constriction. Every thing looked fine from the outside. I was still a functioning member of society, could do my job. Um, but boy, was it lonely and controlled and rigid. There were so few pleasure points in my life. So my work over the last two decades has been able to let myself take in pleasure and still feel safe. Those get really confusing for survivors of sexual trauma. So you mentioned this word safety, which I think comes up for all of us as survivors, but um, the more I know, 15 now years into talking about sex, um, the connection between safety and pleasure for all of us within our bodies. Um, so from the somatic psychotherapy perspective, what does the word safety mean um, beyond our kind of first imaginings of sexual safety? And what is this connection between a sense of safety and access to pleasure? Mm -hmm. I um, have so appreciated uh, Dr. Peter Levine's and Stephen Porges. When, when I'm looking at safety, I'm really coming back to the nervous system. To me, safety is not the absence of threat. Safety mm -hmm. is knowing that even if there is a threat present, I have enough self-resourcing, enough agency, enough empowerment, enough choice to take care of myself. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. Um, I love how the protocol that you practice from and the protocol that I practice from, they really mirror each other. Um, but in reclaiming pleasure, and this again is from my dissertation, my the first construct that I'm working with is control. But what I really mean by that is safety. The second construct is pleasure. And I can't do the second construct first. I can't ask people to access pleasure until they are feeling safe. So to me, that's just, that's part of the process there. Yeah. And again, we'll put some links in the show notes page for people who want to geek out on polyvagal theory yeah. and join the passionate polyvagalist society. <laughs> um, but I want us to feel into this sense of we can be in our own bed lying next to our spouse, there's nothing tapping at the windows and our bodies still cannot relax into a feeling of safety and pleasure. And it's that internal sense that we really want to cultivate. Um, but so much of this is social safety and belonging. Mm -hmm. Will I still be loved? Am I accepted? Can I be fully seen and still be vulnerable? right? Can I be safe and vulnerable at the same time? And for so many of us, this is a capacity that needs to be flexed and grown incrementally. 
And you mentioned kind of the frameworks we work within. I really want to ask you about um, incremental growth and learning within this and kind of how do we set our expectations um, and celebrate the wins along the way? Because so many of this can be so, so subtle as we reclaim pleasure and we can find ourselves like, wow, I said what I needed and I got, you know, support and resources in return. Um, and just these little moments of win can, you know, we talk about installing the good, like how do we think about this as a path and not like, you know, a magic pill that for some of it's a lifetime of, of practice. Mm-hmm. Um, what question am I asking you right now, other than saying I, yes to it all? I, I think I got it. So I'm going to try to answer it this way. <laughs> Thank you. So to, to me, I'm working every person that I sit with and I check in with myself daily. Where am I on the continuum of rigidity, fluidity, and laxity? Rigidity, fluidity, laxity. So rigidity is feeling unsafe. It's trying to control everything. Fluidity in the middle, that's about flexibility. That's that self-resourcing. That's agency. That's empowerment. No matter what's happening, I can almost be sure I'll be okay. And the laxity is the giving up, the depression. I'm not going to be able to do this. All of us, no matter how long we've been doing this work, I still struggle on both ends of the spectrum. I'm always trying to come back to that middle place. So it is a practice. And most of us will have an area that we've worked through. For me, um, I've worked through rigidity around food and exercise, right? But for other, for time management, that's always been, that's always been a place of fluidity. That's a strong wheelhouse for me. I had a lot of work to do around relationships and safety and reciprocity. Um, other areas, I'm like, no, I, I can, you know, I've, I've always been able to show up for friends, but the romantic relationships have been harder. So it's being compassionate with ourselves, figuring out, oh, I have a lot of flexibility and fluidity here. But boy, when this shows up, do I want to control the shit out of it? Right? Or this makes me want to give up. Mm-hmm. Talk to me again about that word control. Um, how related is it to the concepts of, you know, surrender and vulnerability? When you talk about control and pleasure, what are we talking about? Mm-hmm. So control, um, so this was the first parameter in the recovery of sexual health after sexual trauma. And when I say that, most people are like, yeah, duh, of course, survivors of sexual trauma are going to want to feel in control. But there's two aspects within control. So there's maintaining control and there's relinquishing control. Most of the work for survivors is around this idea of relinquishing control. Can I relinquish control and still feel safe? Mm-hmm. Do I know I'm choosing people in my life that have my back and that when I'm vulnerable, it will be reciprocated? Vulnerability can't be a one-way street. This is a process, Chris, what you and I are doing right now with each other as we disclose these little pieces of ourselves. That's reciprocal vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. And so is it every sexual encounter, whether it's a new one with a first date and a first kiss or a spouse of 20 years reaching out to initiate intimacy, um, in those moments, we have to really tune in and like choose whether or not we're going to be vulnerable and to what degree. And I think some of the things we talk about here at Pleasure Mechanics invite us into you know, expanding the ways we can connect, the ways we touch one another, um, and how we think about pleasurable, joyful, intimate connection. Um, so we can find our yes within that, right? 
And this is, you know, erotic touch and massage has always been a heart of pleasure mechanics because for me as a survivor, what I found is massage was a place I found so many um, moments of yes and so many moments of negotiating touch and asking for what I wanted more clearly um, in a less charged realm than sex. And meanwhile, massage was allowing that connection, that body-to-body connection um, that established safety and communication. Um, and when Charlotte and I got together as lovers, we found this realm of massage as a place to transition between our day where we had to have a lot of control and be in this kind of, um, a lot of us have to be in a hyper doing mode. How do we sink into that zone of just being and feeling? Um, touch and massage became a pathway for me as a survivor to relax into arousal. Um, and I also want to talk here about relaxing into connection because this idea of hyper threat tracking of feeling vulnerable within relationships, um, when it comes to sexual relationships, a lot of us have trouble relaxing into a sense of belonging and connection, um, because we've been told who we are as sexual beings, we don't belong, um, or we need to be fixed in some way. Um, so when you think about connection for survivors and for all of us, what are some somatic practices and capacities that you see for, you know, kind of where we are as humans right now? Um, so many of us feel lonely. Um, so what are the somatics of connection and how do, how are some ways we can practice that? Oh, that's such a good question. Something I love to offer my clients is this question, how does my nervous system feel with this person? <laughs> Right. So we're back to polyvagal theory and really checking in with our nervous systems. So I have a feeling everyone is getting from me. Um, I'm sorry to be like hitting you over the head with this, but the body is really the first line of defense or offense or connection, pleasure, vulnerability. This, it just makes sense to me this way. Um, I like the bottom up processing. So starting with the body and going to the mind instead of most therapeutic approaches or most of the way we move through the world, which you spoke to, where we have to lead with the head and then, oh, I'm just dragging these two, four limbs and heart and torso around. I think we can access pleasure, connection, vulnerability much more fluidly, much more profoundly if we're starting with the body. How does my nervous system feel when I'm with this person? What would feel good for me to do? Reach out and touch their hand. Do I need to keep two feet between myself and that person? And again, here's another space for a lack of self-judgment. Mm. Instead of, oh, I don't feel great with this person. I don't know why, but I don't feel great. But you know what? I'm just going to push through and do what they want me to do. Those are, those are the scripts that need to change. And I think that's happening on such a such a social cultural level right now, thanks in part to the Me Too movement three, four years ago now, but we still have a lot of work to do. Mm. We will continue our conversation with Dr. Holly Richmond after we take a moment to thank our sponsors for this episode. Big thanks to likeakitten.com for sponsoring this episode and keeping our toy boxes refreshed and interesting with their beautiful seasonal gift packages of curated sex toys and accessories, all delivered in a beautiful gift-ready box straight to your door at an incredible value. 
at Like a Kitten, you will find beautifully curated gift boxes, or you can build your own box and choose from a beautifully curated selection of toys, accessories, lubes, and lingeries. And as listeners of this show, you can use the code PLEASURE for 15% off and free shipping. Just go to likeakitten.com slash pleasure or enter the code pleasure at checkout for 15% off and free shipping your curated box of beautiful sex toys and tools. That's likeakitten.com slash pleasure. If you are ready to turn on your mind and explore your erotic imagination, go to dipsystories.com slash pleasure for 30 days free access to our favorite treasure trove of audio erotica, soundscapes, and incredible first-person erotic audio experiences where you get immersed in the turn-on of a lover's hungry voice coming at you. Explore the power of psychogenic turn-on with our friends at Dipsy Stories. Go to dipsystories.com slash pleasure. That's D-I-P-S-E-A stories, dipsystories.com slash pleasure and see what audio erotica can offer you. You will find all of the generous offers from our podcast sponsors at pleasuremechanics.com slash toolbox. That's pleasuremechanics.com slash toolbox to fill your pleasure toolbox up with some of our favorite tools and toys for more pleasure. That's pleasuremechanics.com slash toolbox, and you will find links in the show notes. Back to our conversation with Dr. Holly Richmond. So I want to take us into like the very intimate realm of sexuality and intimacy. As we affirm a wide range of choices, a wide range of normal, and that any range from asexual to megasexual, from vanilla to kinky, from monogamous to poly, with so many choices, what are some somatic tools that help us tune into what is true for us moment to moment and to find points of agency? How do you guide folks into that process of deciphering, discerning, and activating those choices? So this this is the fun part of the work to me or the more exciting. So, you know, as we're working through the protocol, we've got the control piece, maintaining relinquishing, which is very perfunctory. Like that's logical. We have to do that. Then we get into this pleasure piece. And for me, this is about discovering someone's sexual template. So we're looking at desire and arousal, desire, the psychological process of wanting arousal, the physiological process of wanting. And as you spoke to, for some people, for many people, they've never even considered this. So instead of jumping into the sexual territory, territory, I asked them to step into the erotic territory. So the erotic means the translation, life force, vitality, vivacity. It can be sexual, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. And then we go to the five senses. So when I see, touch, hear, taste, smell, and we fill in the blank after each of those, I feel desire. 
or I can literally, when I touch leather, that turns me on. When I smell musk, that turns me on. When my feet are in the ocean, that I, that encourages desire in me. Just because I feel like the five senses, again, we're back to the body. It doesn't typically steer us wrong if we're in this place of safety and knowing that we have agency. Um, but it doesn't have to be overtly sexual because again, for some people, that's not even going to be on the menu at all, whether they're a survivor or they're not, or they're not ready to go there. And that's fine. And again, finding the places that already are so strengths-based. I really appreciate that because so many of us, um, we focus on where we feel broken. We focus on where we feel alone. And for a lot of us, we have a lot of areas of strength and safety and connection that are deeply erotic, but not, might not be sexual. And for some of us, this is like singing in choir at church is when you feel most, I can open my throat and be alive and be fully me. And so we can start tracking and noticing the qualities of these spaces and experiences and mapping them forward into desires, requests. Um, and I think that process for so many of us, survivors or not, again, of the ask, mm-hmm. right? Because it's one thing to kind of calibrate towards safety, but there's something about wanting and specifically wanting something that doesn't exist yet, right? That dopaminergic track of what if and is this possible for me? And can I ask for something so big, right? Um that is an inherently vulnerable kind of leap forward. What are the skills we bring to that kind of ask and the vulnerability of trying something new, asking for something new, making a leap into the unknown? How do you talk about that? Oh, gosh. How do you think about that? Yeah, that it's, this is the practice. Uh, I loved that you mentioned singing because dancing or running or writing or painting are usually in this framework too. And it's such a wonderful, non-threatening place to start from, or just a place of exploration to develop, okay, what are what are these other things that I want to ask for that I've never felt safe enough to? So this is a practice. Um, we have to have our no's before we feel safe enough to go to our yeses, right? Mm-hmm. So we're back at the control piece, and now we're well into pleasure. Practice with a safe person. So you've spoken to this before. Um, Really, okay, so you're then you're back to how does my nervous system feel when I'm with this person? That's going to be your first question before you go for the big yes, Mm. right? And you have to have the self-agency and resourcing. Not every time you ask for the thing is, are you going to get it? Sometimes the people in your life are going to trip up. And those are moments where you know, okay, this isn't about malice. This is just about misattunement. How do you come back and try again? And that's this flavor of reciprocity, vulnerability that you spoke so beautifully to a few moments ago. But I really, the the idea that it's a practice and, and yes, start with the known. Those are great pieces, but then bring your partner, the people in your life that you're having these asks and, and create that practice of reciprocity. 
Totally. And I often bring us back to, you know, other things we practice, instruments or sports where we don't expect to make every hoop when we start shooting, but the ones we do give us that incentive to keep moving. And so as we practice all of these pleasure skills, everything we talk about here at Pleasure Mechanics, all of the skills in your course for survivors, um, installing the good and noticing the wins and finding those moments of, wow, this feels good. I'm enjoying myself, I feel relaxed, and slowing down to savor those moments and notice is like making that hoop and hearing that swish, right? And we have to give ourselves permission to install the winds, Um, which relationally, I think, is so important to, you talk about practicing gratitude um, and expressing our wants and our desires, but also what has worked and where our strengths together. Um, and it's such a positive uplifting cycle. And I really just want to name that for people that we can kind of follow it like a lily pad path. I often feel it's like leaping lily pad to lily pad. Um, we talked a few episodes about confidence and it's linked to trust because a lot of people ask us about how do we develop confidence? Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that trust, as you said, is not trusting that everything will go perfectly, but trusting that we are resourced and able to be flexible, dynamic ask for resources and support when we need it and make it to the next lily pad. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, that was beautifully, that was beautifully said. And I loved the basketball analogy because that's a place of eroticism for me. Mm. So so for your listeners, again, so there's this word er eroticism. It can be sexual, but basketball is not sexual. Well, maybe a little, it depends on who I'm watching, right? But that's a place of eroticism for me. So it's just the encouragement to look for these moments of eroticism in your life and figure out what is the ask around that, that I need at this point. So I want to slow you down. How do you know it is a place of pleasure and eroticism? What do you feel around basketball that you don't around maybe another sport? Ah, if this is not a good answer, but it feels good in my bones. I've always loved to play it. I'm barely decent. I couldn't even, I mean, I'm, I'm old, so I don't play much anymore. (laughs) I got hurt. So I was playing basketball with some 10 year olds years ago and broke my foot. And I was like, okay, I think I need to slow my roll a little bit here, but just putting a basketball in my hand with my eight year old Oh my gosh, I feel so free. I feel confident. And I, it's not even about making the shots. I just love having the ball in my hand. It's somatic. I don't know how else to say it. I love driving fast. Again, it just feels good in my bones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that in you know, my bones because it takes us to our marrow mm-hmm. um, and that sense of pleasure and you know, and the tools we offer and the conversations to continue when we ask you about discernment and how do you know what you like, how do you know what you want? There's an opportunity here to kind of go into our bodies and think about our known pleasures because our conscious minds have this incredible ability to evoke a full body response to a memory alone. Mm -hmm. And this psychogenic arousal ability is something my listeners know I've been geeking out on. How do you as a somatic psychotherapist invite us to really tap into the powers of our mind to purposefully evoke pleasure, safety? Like how can we use our mind as a tool even when we're resting in our own bed to practice pleasure? Mm -hmm. 
Oh, that was beautifully said. So my framework here is usually to start talking about fantasy, but this can be off-putting or a little scary for some people because they just want to say, I don't fantasize. There's nothing I think about sexually. So maybe instead of the word fantasy, I go to daydream. What do you daydream about? And how does that create access to the erotic and then to the sexual? Because I promise you, they are daydreaming about something. There is something there where we can start with this little kernel of desire, of wanting, and then bring meaning to it. Mm. And so if I said to you, I daydream about sipping wine in Tuscany, and that's all I can come up with. What is that? What's a cue there that you might pick up on? Mm -hmm. uh, freedom, beauty, pleasure, taste, mm -hmm. sight. I would just dig in and I would mm -hmm. ask you to tell me more, like mm -hmm. what is happening. But I have a feeling you're probably not working. I have a feeling you're probably <laughs> don't have a lot of responsibility in that moment. I bet you're not doing dishes. Right. <laughs> what would it feel like to be relaxed? Mm -hmm and give yourself permission to enjoy, right? Right, and then from there, how do we create micro moments of that, you know? Right. After you do the dishes at the end of the long day, I said to my wife, you know, take 10 minutes and sit with your tea instead of drinking it while you're doing the other thing. And she's like, oh, you're right. And she's not someone that needs to be reminded about pleasure often. And yet in our day-to-day -day life, the invitation to slow down and give ourselves opportunity for these things we daydream about a lot of those qualities are accessible to us in the micro mm -hmm. and our culture like uh, fixates, I think, on these big experiences, on the bachelor kind of romance. Um, and so often that expectation creates cycles of frustration and disappointment, where if we can focus on micro pleasures, on moments of pleasure, on these little wins I've been talking about, um, the frustration can give way to delight and surprise. Um, Absolutely. And I think um, that's something that the pandemic has offered us, right? We've had to find the micro because we haven't been traveling. So there haven't been these grand gestures. I know so many people who have made pretty profound changes in their lives exactly for these reasons, because they finally identified, I need more moments of pleasure, more moments of freedom, more moments of comfort, silence, whatever, whatever the thing is for them. Yeah. Yeah. As we start opening to pleasure and even thinking about making requests, one of the emotions that comes up for a lot of us is the fear of being needy. And one of the lines I love from your work is, we are only as needy as our unmet needs. Permission to have needs and be relational beings that need one another's support, please. Yeah. <laughs> All of us come from a family system, right? Mm. None of us escapes the family system. And whether that was securely attached, insecurely attached, avoidant, I know you've talked to people who have much more insight on attachment theory than I do. But my point is we come from a system and to think that 20, 40, 50 years later, I've completely grown out of that system. It doesn't usually work that way. It's a constant practice of recognizing where I am needy, where I feel where I need validation, where I'm not getting enough validation. It's so funny. My husband just said this to me yesterday in a very kind way, but essentially like you need a lot of validation around whatever the thing is that we were talking about. And I just had to sit with that. 
I think he's right. I think he's right. Even for being a psychotherapist and 52 years old and all of the work I've done, there are still some areas where I need a lot of validation and I do feel needy and I continue to work on those. And I don't want to be judgmental with myself. I want to be accepting, take responsibility where I can. So I think it's this piece of disconnecting from the shame. 12 years ago, if he had said that to me, I would have been so shameful about my areas of neediness. Now I can take it. I can hear it and say, okay, where, where can I tweak that a little bit? Mm-hmm. And again, that's the moment of self-compassion when we're confronted, you know, in that, that verb, it's really like our faces can come back. We have a moment of contraction in our body and finding those resources within us, finding the frameworks to confront these moments over and over again. Um, and what that compassion opens up. And that's what I want to kind of Um, invite people into is the spirit of discovery of what's on the other side of thinking about and being within your sexual experience with a little less judgment, a little more compassion, a little more presence. All this month, we're talking about mindful sex. And I wanted to include this conversation because I know mindfulness practices um, play a big part in what you offer. Um, But I also really appreciate how you are pushing our field to think about what more is needed to optimize this erotic experience and explore the edges of arousal. Um, So what are the tools from mindfulness that are most useful to us in this field of sexuality? And where might we need new tool sets or hybrid tools um, for the practice of paying attention during arousal specifically? Because that's different than being on the meditation map. It it is. It is. And I think I'll speak specifically to that. So as many mindfulness teachers share, I think the breath is one of our most fundamental tools. So start with just a body scan. And what I mean by that, from your toes to the top of your head, what sensations are coming up? How can you name those? And then breathing into those areas to, again, try to create this area of fluidity. So we're not in rigidity. We're not in laxity. We're in this middle ground of fluidity. And how do we resource and access from there? From that point, if we're in the more sexual realm, most of us, there's some outlier. There's some thing, some scene, some experience that we don't want to share because it just sounds so awful to us. And we're so afraid of the judgment. Um, I I like to poke the bear in these areas. I want to know what's under that because it's not it's probably not the scene itself. It's not the position, the experience. It's the meaning you give to that, which again Mm -hmm. is probably freedom, empowerment, lack of marginalization. I have my voice. I can be big. I can be small, any, any of the things. So it's really like digging under there. Acceptance. Mm -hmm. acceptance. And when we accept, and this is one of the most powerful things I think is like when we accept our most um, intimate, bizarre, unique parts of our sexuality. Uh, A lot of people use the word homecoming Mm. um, or feeling held when, and this can happen even in conversation with, I think someone like Charlotte, myself, you, uh, this is kind of a a topic of conversation among sex educators. It happens on the train, in the grocery store. People love to confess themselves to a benevolent presence. Mm. 
And then the uh, relaxation and release that happens when we just are socially accepted for who we are is really magical. Um, and we can offer that to ourselves again and again by when we notice judgment come up. Um, you were speaking about body scans and we have them in our mindful sex course. And another practice in there is um, self-holds. And we recently added this practice and includes a genital hold, right? One hand on the heart, one hand on the genitals. And someone wrote, you know, but when I do this, all of these feelings come up. So why would I, why did you include it? And it's like precisely because it's activating, we include it precisely because we need to hold ourselves here. And everything that comes up is, again, to bring ourselves to the beginning of this interview, that information, that communication from the body, like, what are you feeling when you hold yourself just over the clothes at the genitals? That's the place of practice for right now, right? Um, so this kind of idea of bringing mindfulness and presence and moment by moment awareness to the aroused state. Can you talk to us a little bit as we close about arousal itself? Um, what's fun about arousal, right? We talk about positive arousal and turn on, but arousal in the system, in the nervous system is, um, it potentially activates other things too, right? It is adjacent to other emotions and feelings. Um, and so how do we work with arousal itself and kind of compassionately explore arousal with an awareness of what else it holds for us? Oh, fantastic. I, Chris, and I, I promise we're going there and I think this is all linked. I love that you just said a few minutes ago, you used the words unique and bizarre around our own sexual template. Um, so sexual template to me is the map of, of what we like. Mm -hmm. I loved unique and bizarre. I really, if you feel, this is for listeners, the words weird, perverted, strange, broken, any of those words coming up, we are banning those words. Um, unique, bizarre, to me, I love interesting. I love curious. And it's just, it's these little bits that make us so unique. Just like our thumbprint, your sexual template, your erotic blueprint is going to be different than everyone else's. And fitting into these socially prescribed boxes, I think um, it's why a lot of people are in my office. And I love what I do, but I know this erotic flexibility that you, that Chris, you and I love to talk about, that would solve so many of these problems because they are psychogenic, right? They're culturally transcribed from the world that we think we should be living in, things we think we should want. Anything there or should I go on with, a, with arousal? <laughs> I just want to pause and I think we'll talk about this on future episodes. But um, if you have any thoughts on this, when we talk about pleasure being context dependent, more and more I'm aware that the primary context is our own interpretation, our own experience of our own feelings, right? Our, our emotions about our feelings um, and the psychogenic nature of so many inhibitions. Um, maybe this is a whole other conversation for another time, but the power of the mind there to interpret and that pleasure is an output, not an input, but exactly exactly and and i i think there's such a bridge here between arousal and sensation so the physiological yeah. process of wanting is how i describe it and most often that is sensation based we are arousing ourselves we're watching something arousing a partner or partners we find arousing but it's also psychogenic um 
I mean, it's a superpower, really. We we only need this to have full body orgasms. And I, it was a superpower when I was pregnant. I would, you know, have orgasms in my sleep. And it's not even, and my husband would just be like, oh my God, that's the coolest thing. How did you do that? Wait, you weren't touching yourself? Like, no, it's all coming from here. And when you communicate that to people, and this isn't a goal, but it's just to point out how much power our mind and I loved when you said our interpretation of what we want, of what turns us on. When we have freedom there, whew. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm. Thank you so much. Um, there are so many more conversations um, that folks will want to have with you and they will find resources in the show notes page. Um, you have a very generous free option for survivors and the rest of us with some somatic grounding exercises, um, which is a category of somatic practice that is just so important when we talk about grounding. It's about finding the ground underneath us, connecting to something bigger, feeling our capacity. Um, and you lead us through a beautiful series of exercises. And then your complete course for survivors, um, which as I close, I just want to offer you the chance to, who is that for? What's the invitation? Um, some of us want one-on-one -on -one therapy, and you'll also find resources for that in the show notes. But for a lot of us um, to be guided through a process, through an online course like you, yours, and I've been taking it myself, um, is a really generous opportunity to do so much learning, practice, and connection at our own pace. So can you please talk about the Reclaiming Pleasure course and who did you make it for? Yes. I made it for people who know they are survivors of sexual trauma. And I also made it for people who don't know they are survivors of sexual trauma, the people that just feel broken, the people who, like you and I talked about, are somaticizers the people who feel like they don't fit in, the people who don't understand their arousal and their fantasies. So this is for everyone. Um, it can be if your sexual trauma happened more recently. It can be if your sexual trauma happened 50 years ago. And I do not use that term 50 years lightly. I have clients who it's been 50 years since they were abused as children and are doing this work. So it's never too late. So the book Reclaiming Pleasure, um, some people love books because they learn from books. They can pick it up. They can put it down. Other people like to hear voice and be guided through exercises. So Reclaiming the Pleasure of the Course is really a mirror of the book, but a little bit more in depth. And again, it is go at your own pace and really take this in in a way that feels good. It offers resources for um, partners of survivors, family friends. Um, so there's a lot of resources in that for you too. And then Reclaiming Pleasure, the lab is coming soon, and that's going to be a group coaching practice. Um, Chris, you know the power of being in small groups and just the vulnerability, reciprocity, the healing that comes from that. So that I'm really excited to offer. But if you go to reclaimingpleasure.com, you'll see the one-on-one, -on -one, you'll see the book, you'll see the course, you'll see the lab. Um, so I hope my hope is that there's something there for everyone. Thank you so much. And there will be links galore in the show notes page. As we close, Dr. Richmond, is there a benediction or kind of words of vision you'd like to offer our audience? 
Yes. So first is just this idea of awareness leading to more understanding and self-compassion. So really disconnecting from the shame. If we can have that umbrella over everything, that that feels like the straightest path forward. But I would also like to say, and this is in the last chapter of my book, telling your story, reclaiming your story is an act of dissent, an act of reclamation. Having great sex is the ultimate act of dissent and reclamation. Sexual trauma and sexual health live on two opposite ends of the spectrum and reclaiming your sexual health in all of its iterations is something all of us deserve and need to enjoy and are entitled to. Mm -hmm. And we're here to support you every step of the way. Dr. Holly Richmond, thank you so much for being in conversation with us today. Thank you, Chris. Cheers. Cheers, friends. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. We will be back with you with another episode of Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. And if you are ready to practice pleasure with us and explore what mindful sex can offer you, go to pleasuremechanics.com slash mindful. That's pleasuremechanics.com slash mindful and get enrolled in our mindful sex online course and start practicing pleasure with us tonight. All right, I am Chris from pleasuremechanics.com wishing you a lifetime of pleasure. Cheers.